everyone. Uh, this is Kevin Hale and Sarah Hale. Hello, everyone. Hey. And uh, this is uh, Vegan Theology. We are in our eighth episode and still pretty excited. <laughs> and I think that, you know, we, like I said, we've been trying to build a framework. And I think today might be, I don't know, close to the end of that framework that we're trying to build. And then from this point, we can get more specific about vegan issues and some counter arguments to our position. Um, and I feel like we'll probably be spending a lot of time, future episodes, discussing these kinds of things. So uh, at any rate, mm. here we are and uh, we're building this framework and we will continue to reference it and hopefully mm-hmm. we can uh, refine it and maybe at some point even have a summary show discussing yeah. the finer points. Yeah, thank you for joining us in this journey because I know, I feel like we've both, you know, just having to do the research and put a few shows together already, I feel like we've we've begun to refine our own theology on these topics. And we also are humbled. We also realize there's a lot more out there that we don't feel quite as confident about or we still have yet to synthesize into our theology or we, there's a lot more we want to read and yeah. discuss. And so... Yeah, it's been a really fun, exciting journey so far, and um, I'm really thankful that we have this opportunity to do this. Yeah, it's been fun. And today's episode uh, will definitely be drawing on what we've already been talking about. I would say specifically, we're going to be looking at our role, humans' role today, and that's really still drawing heavily from the you know, one of our first episodes that we ever did, which was the Imago Dei, and that at creation, humans were given the responsibility by God to represent God in creation and rule the way God would rule creation and be responsible and take care of creation and and, and spread the kingdom of God. Right. And so that's God's project, and we've been building the case that that's always been God's project. He hasn't right. He hasn't bagged that and, nope. and he's still, God is still determined to fulfill that, to fulfill the, the idea of spreading the kingdom and redeeming all of creation. Right. And uh, yeah, exactly. Fulfilling the creation that he originally started with. Yeah. And then we've really been spending the last couple episodes talking about the idea that we've been brought up in and steeped in in the church of escaping creation at the end of life to go uh, live in a heavenly realm is actually a very platonic Gnostic idea that a lot of scripture does not support at all. That actually scripture supports the idea once again, that heaven is going to come down to earth and God is going to reside with us here in this redemption project, that God is going to split the veil between heaven and earth, and they're going to be one. Right. And finally be fulfilling our role of rightly ruling this good creation. Yeah. And I do remember uh, we, we've been watching some N.T. Wright and reading N.T. Wright, and it's interesting. He almost makes it sound like this is an American thing more than anywhere else. And he also refers to it sometimes as a, as a mythology yeah, like the, I guess the nineteenth century evangelists and the Great Awakening and the and dispensationalism. And dispensationalism, right. yeah, really, you know, started to go into this. Popularized it. This rapture theology and yeah, that 
that right. we're, that we're going to be, we're going to be, we need to get out of here. Right. Basically. Right. And it's interesting too. One thing I didn't even think about, but I was thinking about it this week was just contemporary Christian music or what we sometimes call CCM. Mm-hmm. How influential we talked about praise and worship songs in church. We talked about hymns. We talked about hymns, um, worship songs, but also, I mean, I referenced worship, worship songs, but we also said, there's the Left Behind series, the books, the movie, but I think the Christian music, and you know, I grew up, we both grew up listening to mm-hmm. a lot of these Christian artists, you know, from Keith Green to Petra to uh, Mylon, Mylon Lefebvre. I mean, yeah. And it's just interesting how much their theology had, I was, I was going to say, influenced me mm-hmm. and how their theology might not be correct. And I still remember, yeah, Larry Norman, you know. I wish we'd all been ready. You know, that kind of thing that plays into the whole getting out of here, rapture, left behind, those that kind of idea. Anyway, yeah. so it just I just wanted to emphasize that, you know, CCM, and we can probably talk about that in the future, that that probably has a lot of influence mm-hmm. on theological thinking of many church-going Christians, conservative. Yeah, and again, the reason it matters because, you know, I mean, as soon as someone starts talking about eschatology, I think I just kind of glaze over with my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, the idea being what we believe is the goal, what we believe is our destiny, greatly affects how we live our lives and what we believe is our duty. And and it greatly affects how we view the world and how much we feel like we should be involved in the world. And so it is very important for those reasons. Yeah. And so Christ's resurrection is central to what we're going to be talking about today. The bodily, physical resurrection of Christ proves that God is saying, see, I am breaking through this kingdom to bring my kingdom. My kingdom is going to reign here on this very planet. And yeah, like N.T. Wright was like a very human Christ came out of a very real earthly grave on a Sunday morning, you know, Mm. and it's a watershed event. And so it inaugurates God's kingdom on this planet. And yet we're still very much in a fallen world where evil abounds and the powerful win and corruption is plentiful everywhere you look. And, And so a lot of people refer to this period of time that we're in between Christ's resurrection and God fulfilling God's kingdom as the already not yet, yeah. which you probably heard someone say at some point. I know yeah. I heard it a lot yeah. <laughs> uh, at Bible college, but yeah, here we are again. It's, it, it is kind of helpful to think about this paradox that yes, we're already in God's kingdom because of Christ's resurrection and yet it hasn't been fully inaugurated or it hasn't right. been fully realized. realized right. No, exactly. And uh, I think N.T. Wright says they're overlapping ages. And I know that Marvin Pate, one of the professors we had at Moody Bible, he's written extensively on the already not yet. And he talks about simultaneous overlapping ages. And so that is what we're talking about, that it's they're not consecutive. It's not like this age ended, this age, this age of sin, and then all of a sudden the next age begins. This age of gorgeous, Edenic, this Edenic age doesn't just start like 
overnight. No, it's actually there's an overlap between Christ broke through with his resurrection into the sinful world, and he starts to make things new. And, oh, by the way, he has disciples and a church that originally God intended for us, as you mentioned, the Imago Dei. We are image bearers, and that gives us a title to represent God on this planet, to represent him as his viceroy's in place of him on earth, okay? And that is that is meant that we rule and serve the way he would, the way he would want it done. And so with that in mind, you think about what the church is today, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what we're really trying to get inspired and get clear on is, okay, this is a really overwhelming task. We look at the world and it's like, what could I possibly, what could I possibly do to bring God's kingdom here today right like how can I make anything better you know so I think that's something that we need to really look into and really hopefully get inspired on what we can do 100% yeah and just to emphasize this a little bit and and some theologians have said that the New Testament it's just pervaded with the already not yet and I think once you get a handle on it you will see it everywhere but reading from uh, C. Marvin Pate his book Apostle of the Last Days, The Life, Letters, and Theology of Paul. I'm just going to read a little passage here from him. He says, Jesus Christ announced that at the end of time, the kingdom of God had arrived in history. And there are many references here, Mark 1.15, and there are many parallels, Luke 4.43. They're just, there's just, he lists tons and tons of passages. He says, yet other passages suggest that although the age to come had already dawned, It was not yet complete. It awaited the second coming for its full realization. And that passage there would be Luke 13, 28 and 29, 14, 4, 19, 11. Hence the name inaugurated eschatology, which Sarah had mentioned that it's been inaugurated, but it hasn't yet been fulfilled completely. And so Pate, Marvin Pate, uh, Dr. Pate here, uses the term for his theology or eschatology that I think were basically saying is our eschatology, he calls it inaugurated eschatology. So this already not yet idea in eschatology would be an inaugurated eschatology. Then he says, so for inaugurated eschatology, the two ages are simultaneous. The age to come exists in the midst of this present age. Christians therefore live in between the two ages until the parousia, the second coming of Christ. So that's Pate's view. And I just want to read from Ted Peters in his book, God, the World's Future. And it's a systematic theology for a postmodern era. Very interesting book. He uses this word prolepsis. And I had to look that one up. Prolepsis is the representation of a thing as existing before it actually does or did so. And the example here is he was a dead man when he entered. So anyway, just reading from uh, from his systematic theology here. And he's he's defining different words, uh, ecumenical and ecumenic. But I'm just going to start with that. I'm not going to define those right now. But ecumenical and ecumenic consciousness anticipates the unity of all things that God has promised will come as a gift of divine grace. With this in mind, the central theme of this book is the concept of prolepsis, whereby the gospel is understood as announcing the pre-actualization 
of the future consummation of all things in Jesus Christ. The world has been given God's promise that in the future, all things will be made whole. The promise comes to us through Jesus who died on Good Friday and rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. He embodies the promise because he anticipates in his person the new life that we humans and all creation are destined to share. Amen. Yeah, amen. That's powerful stuff right there. This is a systematic theology, so Ted Peters covers all the branches of theology that we've talked about. But this is in his chapter on eschatology. I just want to read this first paragraph, which I think is quite compelling. Salvation is already present to us in faith. It is present in faith, but not in experience, at least not in uninterrupted, continual, plenary, uncontradictable experience. Faith is under continual attack by temptations from within and suffering from without due to the warfare between the two eons, due to the conflict between the present and the future. Beatitudinal living is living between the times. We both have and await the blessings that Christ has wrought. We live out the power of salvation that dwells within our hearts while yet awaiting salvation to come in its fullness. We express the vitality and power of the new life while yet awaiting the new life to transform our existence. Faith has this proleptic structure that permits us to live now with confidence and hope while expecting still greater things to appear in the future. I think it's so powerful. Um, and this book's quite amazing. Uh, if you want to get a systematic theology, maybe Ted Peters, God, the world's future. And I love how he says this, you know, beatitudinal living. We mm. were talking about that last episode where we were quoting the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. I think we even said there that that is creation care theology. So yeah. there we are. Good it, stuff. It just, it resonates, right? Like it, well, you read that and you're like, yes. Yeah. Yes. 100%. Like I experienced that. I experienced knowing God's amazing presence in my life and the power of salvation in my life. And at the same time, I am, I feel like I'm oppressed by, you know, the wickedness in me and around me. Right. And it's like, I, I know that I'm waiting for more. Right. <laughs> I'm waiting for what's to come. Yeah. And yeah, like just knowing, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of how we can live today? Totally. That's where we find ourselves. So again, hinging on that, on the biggest event in human history, the, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, N.T. Wright really emphasizes that, you know, a lot of people, especially in the more liberal branches of our church, you know, ha have even said, oh, you know, you can take or leave the resurrection. It's not, it's not really, you could still be a Christian and not believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus. And, and Wright would definitely disagree with that. He would say, you, you may be something that looks kind of like a Christian, but there's, the resurrection is the, the big, <laughs> it's the big deal. Right. It is the deal. Right. And, um, so he says, precisely because the resurrection has happened as an event within our own world, its implications and effects are to be felt within our own world here and now. So again, pretty inspiring words, but right. he says, a vision of the present hope that is the basis of all Christian mission. To hope for a better future in this world, for the poor, the sick, 
the lonely and depressed, for the slaves, the refugees, the hungry and homeless, for the abused, the paranoid, the downtrodden and despairing, and in fact for the whole wide, wonderful and wounded world, is not something else, something extra, something tacked onto the gospel as an afterthought. So I think a lot of us grew up in churches, again, this is kind of hearkening back to the idea that the real mission of the church is to save souls so that we can escape to heaven. Right. And he's saying, and then like some churches might be like, yeah, we should probably also care about the poor people. And we should probably also care about the sick people. You know, right. it was kind of a tacked on thing. Like, let's, right. No, let's, it's an afterthought for sure. Let's try to make this existence a little less miserable. Right. Um, but he's saying, no, that is the mission to make this world a better place. So N.T. Wright draws a lot from 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight in this regard in terms of that what we do today does matter for God's kingdom. And so 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, Therefore, my beloved ones, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's interesting. Because, yeah, what you were saying earlier, Kevin, in a conversation we were having is some people might be like, uh, okay, so if God is going to redeem and make new this creation. Right. Why bother doing anything? Because like whatever, whatever we do, God's going to fill it up. God's going to make up the difference. Especially when it feels like every time we try, we're just banging, we're bloodying our heads against the wall of the power. Right. That doesn't want us to to bring God's kingdom onto this planet. So right, but but kind of what you're saying, I feel like many Christians don't even bother. Yeah, they're like, this world's going away. We're getting out of here. God's going to clean it up. This is what I keep saying many episodes. God's going to clean it up. And but yet that passage you just read, because I think this is the question. I think this is the question for a lot of Christians. Is like, well, what what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Like. Isn't God going to fix things? If he's going to fix things, then why should I? Like, he, you know what I mean? How, what's my job and what's his job? And, and I don't want to be getting in God's way, and I don't want to be yeah. doing things that he's going to do. You know what I mean? Or who do I think I am? Do you know what I mean? But yet he's called us to live, to care for creation. Paul goes up against this kind of thinking in different ways, in different epistles, like even when it comes to personal holiness, right? Because we, we're very familiar with the passages that say, like, you know, just because you're covered by God's grace, don't go on sinning. Right. That doesn't mean like, oh, I'll, I'll make God's grace even bigger if I sin even more. Right. You know, he's like, no, of course not. Of course you're sacred and you need to treat yourself as sacred and you need, your holiness does matter. And in like manner, I think what, what we're talking about right here, like why should I worry about this broken, corrupt creation if God's going to ultimately make it new. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, this passage, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, you should be, we should be abounding in the work of the Lord because in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. And so N.T. Wright really fleshes this out a lot in the next chapter that he wrote in Surprised by Hope that in this very mysterious way that we can't understand right now, only by faith, do we hold on to the idea that that what we do today 
is building God's kingdom, that it is going to bring God's kingdom. It's right. going to go forward into God's kingdom. Right. Well, yeah, because that makes me think, like, even I sometimes I think even the work that we're doing to, you know, help animals or just take care of the poor, the oppressed, all of the things that we should be doing as Christians, a lot of times even I think, like, well, when God comes and renews everything, he's going to, like, wipe everything new. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's going to reset everything. And it doesn't really matter what I did. Like, he's just going to reset it. Like, even though I did good and I did what I was supposed to be doing, and it wasn't to earn salvation. It was because that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be um, helping creation. We're supposed to be moving the kingdom forward. Okay, this isn't about buying your salvation. This is about doing what God tells you to do. But even in doing that, there's this sense, and even in my mind, that when whatever good I can do to remedy a broken world, when God renews everything, it's going to be like restored to a place that I never could have. So I just wonder like, what good am I doing? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? But that passage would indicate that my labor is not in vain, that some good is happening. Yeah. Like God, God sees it and God is going to somehow magnify it. But, but, but in terms of whatever transformation I'm, I'm bringing, whatever part of the kingdom that I'm bringing to this present reality, like what good am I bringing to this practical present reality? Do you know what I mean? That's the question I always have mm. in doing this. Like I keep thinking, all right, I'll just do it, keep plugging away. But at the end of the day, whoosh, it's going to get wiped clean. So N.T. Wright writes further, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. I mean, that, what he's saying there, and like this passage from Corinthians, yeah, it sounds like what he's saying is we're actually building, we're a part of the creative process of building the new creation. Right. Even if we don't fully understand exactly what that is. I think another argument that comes up in your mind and people's minds when we start talking this way or thinking this way about that we've been given the responsibility to, to bring God's kingdom here. I mean, I think a lot of theologians especially are very wary of that kind of talk mm. because one example, I mean, and I just happened to hear this person speak on a podcast uh, not too long ago, is Sky Jatani, a theologian and pastor and author. Anytime anything is said that kind of sounds like God needs us, mm. he's very allergic to anything that smells like of that. Like, he's like, no, that's paganism. God does not need us. God does not need anything. Like, to, to even say anything along those lines is kind of diminishing God's character or, God, mm. you know, the qualities of God. And so when we're sitting here saying it's our job to bring God's kingdom or to do what we can to bring God's kingdom, it, it gets into this whole, like, okay, well, yeah, how much of it is God? How much of it is us? Is God waiting for us? Is, 
are we waiting for God? Or, right. you know, like, what is this mysterious relationship? What is going on? And so N.T. Wright gets into this a little bit. He says, people might say, doesn't that sound as though you're trying to build God's kingdom by your own efforts? And so he says, you know, let, let's be, let's, first of all, let's just get really clear that only God can build God's kingdom. Hmm. And like the ultimate redemption of God's creation when heaven truly comes down onto earth and God sets up his dwelling here on earth and redeems all things, that obviously is not something that we can do, and we're not pretending that we can. He says, but that doesn't take away the fact that God ordered God's creation so that humans are here to bring God's kingdom. So let me just read from what he says. But God ordered his world in such a way that his own work within that world takes place not least through one of his creatures in particular, namely the human beings who reflect his image. He has enlisted us to act as his stewards in the project of creation. Through the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, he equips humans to help in the work of getting the project back on track. And so he says, though it seems humble and pious to say, Oh, no, that, that's God's work. He said, actually, it's a way of hiding from responsibility, and it's basically keeping one's head well down when the boss is looking for volunteers. Mm, interesting. So he kind of makes, I guess you could say, short work of that excuse. And you could definitely say that the conservative fundamentalist church has really become quite comfortable in, right. th- in thinking that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're almost like they're selling tickets to the lifeboat. It's like this world is the Titanic, it's going down, and we need to get as many people on the lifeboats as possible. And like there's this Gnosticism mixed in there that if you care about this planet, somehow you're an ad- idolater. Yeah, or you're a pagan. That, I mean, yeah, that you're like worshiping creation, right. you know, things like that. And so, yeah, they've become very comfortable in almost sanctifying the lack of concern yeah. over this creation. As soon as they they hear about somebody in their church who cares or is trying to do some kind of community work. Or, yeah, you care about ecology. You might care about the climate. You care suddenly, about the animals. Yeah, all of a sudden you're, you're kind of loony. And your salvation is called into question. Correct, yes. So if I could, yeah. I would love to read. It's a, it's a little bit longer of a quote by N.T. Wright. But the reason I think that maybe it would be good is I don't think I'm probably alone when I say that, first of all, the vision of God's plan, um, the vision of the afterlife, the vision of the destiny has been so confused and so vague and kind of uninspiring that I think that the way N.T. Wright writes in this passage is kind of, it's somewhat inspiring. Yeah, let's hear it. And I'm kind of like, you know, maybe we need more of that. Maybe we need to catch an actual vision and actually get inspired by what God is doing and how we have a role to play in that. Yeah. So let me just make sure I'm in the right spot. So he says, but what we can and must do in the present, if we are obedient to the gospel, if we are following Jesus, and if we are indwelt, energized, and directed by the Spirit, is to build for the kingdom. This brings us back to 1 Corinthians 15:58 once more. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. 
You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of his spirit, means that what we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. I have no idea what precisely this will mean in practice. I am putting up a signpost, not offering a photograph of what we will find once we get to where the signpost is pointing. I don't know what musical instruments we shall have to play Bach in God's new world, though I am sure Bach's music will be there. I don't know how my planting a tree today will relate to the wonderful trees that there will be in God's recreated world. I do not know how the painting an artist paints today in prayer and wisdom will find a place in God's new world. I don't know how our work for justice for the poor, for remission of global debts, will appear in that new world. But I know that God's new world of justice and joy, of hope for the whole world, was launched when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. And I know that he calls his followers to live in him and by the power of his spirit, and so to be new creation people here and now, bringing signs and symbols of the kingdom to birth on earth as in heaven. Wow, that's pretty powerful. And inspiring. I feel like I want more. <laughs> we need more. Those are the kind of sermons we need in church right there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, it's like, it's almost like so wonderful. And it's almost like it doesn't want, it just kind of bounces off and bounces away. And you're like, wait, I need to read that again. Wait, yeah. I need to read that again. Like, I, I was thinking a lot about this this week. It's almost like we're in a learned helplessness. Hmm. We have been taught over and over again in our lives and in our parents' lives and in our grandparents' lives that life will knock you down. It will knock you to your knees. It will bring you to your knees. It will bring your dreams to their knees. We've been rolling around in the dark and in the mud for so long that we almost can't even imagine goodness or the way it's supposed to be mm. at times. Like we can't, it's almost like when your heart has been broken so many times you don't even really want to allow yourself to imagine hmm. something better or something good. 
I feel like as a whole creation, again, the Bible says that, you know, creation is groaning like in childbirth, waiting for the redemption, right? Mm. Waiting, waiting for the revealing of God's people, basically. But it's like on the one hand, we know deep down in our hearts that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But there's another part of us that believes this is just the way it is. Right. And it's almost like our imaginations have been squashed. And so, yeah, to read a passage like that, that every goodness that we do, every act of mercy, every act of kindness, anytime we bring honor to Jesus's name, that somehow is going to be a piece of God's kingdom. Mm. Like it's like we're, we're making, we're constructing blocks or something that are mm. going to build the kingdom. Mm. Yeah. No, it's pretty powerful stuff. The more we can steep ourselves in this kind of theology and the more we can encourage ourselves to imagine and wonder and believe that, yeah, there's not a single act of kindness that God does not see and that isn't building God's kingdom, the more we can really hang on to that, I think it's really going to change how we view our lives. And and it could, yeah, the belief is it, it is changing the world today. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's good stuff. And also I thought it was interesting that N.T. Wright talked about non-human creatures. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, what is that? Can you read that again? And by the way, this is from his book, Surprised by Hope. Yes. Do you know what chapter this is? Yes, I could tell you that. So this is in the last part of the book, part three, um, chapter 13, Building for the Kingdom. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up, Kevin, because I was surprised to see that, but also comforted and, and delighted to see that. So let's go back to that. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. Wow. Um, And then, of course, the end of that sentence is, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. So, yeah, I'm very curious. Like, why would N.T. Wright think to add that this is not just about being kind to our fellow human beings, but in fact, it's, it's about being kind to our fellow non-human creatures. No, it's very interesting. And I mean, it's, it's awesome that a scholar of his caliber is, is making a statement like that. Cause as we know, many of the resources we have are very anthropocentric. Middleton uses the term holistic salvation and Pate and Ted Peters, they talk about cosmic salvation. And I think mm. that if you're doing good for any part of the creation, the earth, animals, humans, that that is part of building the new creation. It's just, it's overlooked. It's a blind spot at church, in theology books. 100%. And so to, to even, I totally agree with you, not just a theologian, but a theologian as well-respected and well-accepted around the globe as N.T. Wright to actually have a phrase, right. <laughs> just one little phrase. And of course, I've, I'm always like, give me more of that. Right. Keep following yeah, that. Why couldn't you say more? Yeah. Right? <laughs> what else could you say about that? Exactly. Um, but yeah, he says it matters for God's kingdom our job as kingdom builders, it matters how we treat our fellow non-human creatures. Hmm. Okay, well, if that's if we're going to take that 
at face value, we better start looking really hard at how we're treating our non-human fellow creatures right now oh. and, and what we're participating in, what we're supporting in terms of how those non-human creatures are being treated today. Right. And I think it's also what we've been saying is the future, in the future, in the fullness of creation, the new creation, there will be no enmity between animals and humans and there will be no predation. There will be, you know, as we've stated, Isaiah talks about the lion and the lamb and the wolf all being together. There's no, there's, there's all peace, nonviolence. And so if that's true for the future and we are meant to live according to God's good creation, then this is the kind of work we need to be doing in this, this interim state that we're in, in this already not yet. We know what the goal is. We know what the ethics of that look like. So this is how we should be living this beatitudinal living that Ted Peters talks about. And he says not to bring works and signs of renewal to birth within God's creation is ultimately to collude, as Gnosticism always does, with the forces of sin and death themselves. So to not care about those things is actually to collude with the forces of Dang. sin and death. But don't, and yeah, then he goes on from there. Wow, that's potent stuff right there. Somebody should uh, <laughs> go talk to some, some <laughs> nah, never mind. Yeah, I do notice though, like he kind of then goes back to talking about ecology. And that, that just reminded me, it does seem like within the church, it's maybe not in the fundamentalist churches that I came out of, but you know, you, it's not that hard to find churches today where it would be totally acceptable from the pulpit for someone to be talking about, let's, take, let's care about the quality of our air. Let's care about the quality of our water. Let's care about our soil, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's like within the church more and more accepted to be like, yeah, creation care. We do need to care about the air, the water, the soil. But again, if you really think about that, it's kind of coming from a selfish place. Yeah. Because we're only thinking about ultimately what's going to harm us. Right. And of course, we need good air, water, and soil to survive. But it, it would still be so foreign and so almost alarming from most pulpits to hear someone say, you know, we should also care about our non-human fellow creatures. Right. Like that's part of creation too, that we were put in charge of right. to rule over like God would. I was thinking like, why is that never called out? Like that, you know, even people who go vegan for their health or whatever, when your motivation is primarily selfish, like that should be kind of noticed. Like, what are we doing that's selfless? What are we doing? Even though, let's just be honest, we are connected to everything. And what we're doing to animals is affecting human beings. Like, we don't want to talk about that. But right. it very much is affecting human beings, what right. we're doing to animals. Especially, yeah, exactly. A lot of the, lot of the animal agriculture in North Carolina, right? The pig farms. Just, yeah, a lot of poor communities. and Yeah, everywhere. But, yeah, if you want to see a great documentary, The Smell of Money, if you haven't heard of it, go check that out. That's fantastic to talk about what animal agriculture is doing to humans. So, Yeah, there, there's human cost to having to work in a slaughterhouse. And there's human, there's human cost to being a poor person where a, 
a big, large-scale animal agriculture facility opens up. You know, there's, there's human costs. But everything we do does affect our, us. Everything we do to nature affects us. But if that's, like, the only motivation that gets us to care, like, there's something wrong there. Mm. And it's not being the way Jesus was, for sure. Right. And then Wright goes into a chapter about justice in terms of how we should be living right now in the already, not yet, that we should be fighting for justice. And justice, as defined in the Bible, is the intention of God, like bringing the intention of God. And so Wright goes into great detail about how from Genesis to Revelation, justice is about setting things right. And what that always means with God is that God, he always sides with the oppressed. And so if we have any questions about that, we look at the person of Jesus Christ, who is our best (laughs) picture of God. And I mean, if you think about Jesus, Jesus always cared about the voiceless, the powerless, the downtrodden. And so Wright puts forth the argument that that's exactly who God is. God always sides against the powerful on the side of the victim. Hmm. And so I was really thinking about that, like, like, what if that's kind of our litmus test as we go through life and we're confronted with different situations and different scenarios? And like, what if one of the things we run it through in our brain is, okay, who is the powerful in this situation? And who are the victims? Mm. Who are the, who have absolutely no power? And of course, there's no better example than animals non right. non-human animals yeah. like they are literally at our mercy totally they have no recourse they have no voice they have no political power they have nothing and we can do whatever we want to them with impunity usually and animals to exploit right and nt right kind of the example that he brings up as a salient issue is the issue of third world debts. The, he says it's just absolutely obscene and corrupt that we are still holding these impossible debts over these third world countries that they'll never, ever be able to pay back. And they're just being crushed under. And he gives his arguments for that. And it was so interesting. He said, a lot of the Christians who write me back and tell me I should stick to theology and keep my, my, my nose out of economics and politics... And the excuses they make for why my plan would never work, he said it's very, a lot of their arguments are very similar to like the pro-slavery arguments that were given back in the days of abolition of slavery. And and I thought how, how similar that is to, you know, the arguments that people give vegans when vegans say that we should stop exploiting animals. A lot of the arguments sound a lot like the pro-slavery arguments Mm. But again, he gives this warning that God always sides with the weak against the strong. It's so if we just really take that into our heart, God always sides with the weak against the strong. So if we are thinking about who are the powerful and who are the weak, I think one thing we could agree on that some of the most po- some of the most power is held by big corporations. And so I think we need to be wary um, whenever we're supporting the interests of big corporations. And Wright 
has a scathing criticism of uh, American conservatism. And he says that American conservatism has basically had this belief that whatever is good for big business must be okay with God. <laughs> and obviously we could go on about that for a while. But the point I'd like to bring up is, you know, animal agriculture. I don't know if people stop and think about what a big, powerful corporation animal agriculture is and, you know, how they have control and power over so much of our politicians and policies and uh, et cetera. But they, they truly have proven that they don't care about what's happening to poor communities or the human health crisis or animal rights or pollution or star uh, starvation around the world or deforestation or the ocean dead zones or species extinction, which they are the major contributor to all of those things. Right. It sounds like they're destroying creation. And so... It's just it's it's a well-established scientific fact that the Western world eating animals, especially if they're eating them three times a day, that kind of diet is causing suffering around the planet mm. because there would be enough plant-based food to feed everyone across the world. But most crops are not grown as a source of nutrition for starving people. They are used to feed livestock. So what people don't stop and think about is how inefficient it is to raise animals for food. That, you know, it takes 16 pounds of grain or soybeans to produce one pound of beef. And so it's this very inefficient system where... Right. Most of the world's food is being fed to livestock, which, and it's not even being turned right into meat or edible flesh. Right. Most of it's just waste. And then we're turning around, and, and then the rich of the world get to eat the animal flesh instead mm. of the poor people being able to eat all of these crops, which would more than feed them. And so some people say that eating meat is a new form of human evil because, you know, there are starving people in the world who are literally not given anything to survive on while we're eating animals. And wow. So getting back to this already not yet state that we find ourselves in where we are called, we know that we're called to bring God's kingdom. And we also know that we're in a world of forces of evil that See, it seems very overwhelming, if not impossible, to start to bring God's kingdom onto this planet. Right, it seems like an uphill battle. And it definitely, yeah, it definitely does. So one thing, you know, and I, I'm continuing to work through this and think through this, but one thing that has been coming to my mind is I heard a rabbi recently say, no, you cannot change the whole world, but can you change the world for one person today? Can you change one person's world today? Mm. That, that does sound like something that resonates with Jesus's ministry. Like he cared about one, helping one individual. Like right. where, wherever he was, he would, he would see the person that he could touch in that moment. And so that does resonate for me. Well, it just makes me think even being vegan. I mean, it's one of the best things you can do to uh, bring in the new creation, to bring the kingdom of God to this world. How many animals are you saving by not eating any? Yeah. And I, that's what I have loved there's so many things I love about ve being vegan, but it's truly something I can do right e now. E every day 
three times a day, every time I go shopping for food, every time I go to a restaurant, I know that I am not contributing to what the horrible things that we do to animals. 100%. And even like I was, I was yesterday in REI shopping for a new hat, a new winter hat. And I had to go through so many hats to find one that was not made of wool. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy the ways that we can contribute to God's kingdom and yeah. the new creation. Yeah, being it's, vegan. it's something that each of us can do. Like there's so many things we can't, we have no power to fix or to influence, but we do have power to not support the enslavement and torture and murder of our non-human fellow creatures. Mm. Yeah, good stuff. And uh, the already not yet, it's the place that we live. It's where we live. The in-between stage, the overlapping of the new creation and the present broken world that is the already not yet. So our job is to usher in the new creation now. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody. Catch you next time.